For status, I am Mira Nabulsi. Nearly three decades after Omar al-Bashir came to power, the Sudanese regime is facing a formidable challenge posed by a fresh wave of unrest. Popular uprisings are not new to the Sudan. This most recent wave of protests started over a month ago in the northern western city of Atbara. Locals took to the streets of a government decision to triple the price of bread. Protests swiftly escalated into anti-government rallies, marches, and work sabotages, rocking several cities and towns, with unions and professional associations joining. Protesters are now demanding for Bashir to step down. According to The Guardian, the government of Omar al-Bashir has launched an alarming crackdown on journalists. At least five reporters have been detained by the National Intelligence Security Services. They are being held at undisclosed locations. According to international rights organizations, more than a thousand people have been arrested. Human rights groups say at least 40 people have been killed. This week, we continue our conversation with McGill University political scientist Professor Khalid Medini. He tells us more about the regional and international role and response to the current protests, the role of women, and the future of this uprising. During the 2013 protests, we saw how the divisions within the ruling bloc widened. Today, we seem to be experiencing a similar development. Some high officials in the government have resigned, Uh, while Mr. Bashir has sacked some other officials, including the health minister. How prevalent and significant are such developments and such rifts within the ruling bloc? They're very significant, I think, that because they are really determined the scenarios that people are thinking about, and that is that would they be a kind of a palace coup, that that is with the military or someone in the military take over. I'll give you a very important example. Uh, some people who are casual observers of Sudan were surprised when Bashir, a couple of weeks ago, made a very surprising statement saying, well, he would be willing to step down uh, for a military person or for the military. And many people thought that that indicated he was willing to to step down from political power. What he was really doing for most Sudanese is he was trying to appease uh, the military and make sure that that he as an individual and his ruling party, the National Congress Party, would have the support of the army. In other words, what is happening now and the, the fissure, the fault line that everyone is observing or looking at very closely is a potential conflict between Bashir himself and army officers, particularly middle-ranking officers in the Sudan Armed Forces. This is very important. So in terms of the structure of the regime, and it is a regime that, rather than a party, so to speak, is that you have Bashir at the apex of, of the ruling party. His own cousin is the prime minister, so you can imagine that it's a very small a clique of relatives and friends that make up now the ruling party. And then you have the Sudanese armed forces that so far have been loyal to the Bashir personally, but we see that there are fissures uh, in their loyalty, particularly in the areas outside of Khartoum and also in Umdurman, where there are indications that the armed forces have, in some cases, uh, if not taken the side of protesters, have tried to defend them from the kind of lime ammunition and uh, the force of the National Intelligence Security Service and the paramilitary rapid support force. RSF, which is basically a group of 
guns for hire or mercenaries, so to speak, as they're called in Sudan, that uh, that were designed to bolster Bashir personally and his court. So really what we're looking at now is the potential fissure and division between Bashir and officers in the Sudanese armed forces. If that, of course, expands, it's a possible a scenario of a palace coup that happened in the past in which you'd have um, Bashir taken out and another officer from the National Army taking over and calling for a transition. That has uh, happened in the past. So that is one scenario to look out for. So we see some indications of that, and many would say and suggest, as I would, that if the protests continue in the sustained way that they are continuing across the different parts of the country, it is likely that the military would take a position against Bashir. But so far, he's trying to make sure that that does not occur. Another aspect of the regime, which I think uh, needs to be emphasized, is the security apparatus, which is really important because you have the Sudan army that I spoke about, but you have also the NIIS, uh, the National Intelligence and Security Services. This is led by Islamist stalwart uh, by the name of Salah Ghosh. He's a very, very prominent intelligence officer who was the first really to cooperate with the United States on uh, counterterrorism intelligence. And by all accounts, and most Sudanese are fully aware, that he has his own ambitions for power to replace Omar Bashir because he heads the the National Intelligence and Security Services, and uh, while at the moment they are cooperating, of course, and supporting Bashir, he also has his own constituency, and he has a great deal of power. In fact, a few years ago, he was actually detained, um, arrested uh, for attempting allegedly to plot a coup against Omar Bashir. So this is another aspect, another division that everyone is looking at to see what move he, Salah Ghosh, the head of the intelligence service, how he will react if these uh, demonstrations persist. And finally, although it shouldn't be finally, but uh, is, of course, the rapid support forces. These are essentially paramilitary forces created by the uh, regime, and they are related to the Janjaweed who uh, enacted all those war crimes or were used by the Bashir regime to pacify and, of course, you know, in many ways, commit ethnic cleansing in Darfur. And so this is the latest kind of mutation in the Sudan. And they are using a great deal of force against the protesters. But by most accounts, most would uh, would say that their loyalty is always in question because they are literally uh, given about a million pounds each person uh, a month in order to be part of this force. So most people would say, and I, as I would, that if the balance of power tilts towards the demonstrators, it's not clear that they would actually be supporting the regime. So one question is, since over 70% of oil export revenue prior to South Sudan's secession was funneled to support the military and popular defense forces in the country, the security forces, military and militia, what has been the impact of the significant scarcity of foreign currency on the regime's ability to maintain its network of patronage and pay its hardcore militant base for their loyalty? And I should point out that you and other scholars have argued that the survival of the Sudanese regime is invariably tied to cohesion and loyalty of these forces. Well, I think that's a central question. I'm glad you kind of left it to the tail end. It is a central question. You had, of course, um, the majority of revenue was coming from oil. About 70% of that was going into what the military establishment under uh, a clause called the security and sovereignty of the nation. 
um, that activists always emphasize and activists are fully aware of. And just as an example, 5% of the national budget has been going into the health sector, for example. There is a reason that doctors and pharmacists have been the ones who are really at the forefront of the Sudanese Professional Association, and that has to do with the appalling status of the health system in addition to public services uh, throughout the country over the past, uh, you know, 30 decades. Um, during the period of the oil um, kind of boom, so to speak, for Sudan, for Khartoum, uh, as I mentioned previously, and you're absolutely right, you had uh, much of that money dispensed uh, to the regions in ways that really established and expanded the patronage networks uh, among key actors, particularly in southern Kurdistan, even Darfur, and certainly, certainly in the northern parts of the country, which is uh, considered the heartland of the constituency of this regime. Following the loss of that oil and all of that revenue, um, the government is not only short of hard currency, but has been forced uh, as a result of that to implement these economic policies in the hope of generating uh, financial assistance and investment from uh, from abroad. Uh, what we see, though, despite um, those measures and also the lifting of sanctions uh, in the late um, 2017 by the U.S., that investors are very wary of investing in the country, that uh, hard currency is very hard to come by for the regime. Uh, and this is uh, one of the reasons, uh, the main reason, that they're putting limitations on even dispensing hard currency for businessmen, traders, for their, uh, to conduct their business and for imports. And we see that they are very much in crisis because of the absence of hard currency has been the way that they have promoted their networks of patronage, particularly not only in Khartoum, but in the regional areas. And this point is important because we see that rupture of patronage networks in these protests and the, in the regional origin and spread of the protest, what is really most significant for your listeners is to understand that whereas in the previous protest, the towns, Akbara, Karima, Dongola, these are northern cities that are the heartland of support on the part of this regime. And it's also, these are regions which are they're really hometowns. They represent many of the hometowns of Omar Bashir, uh, his prime minister, Salah Ghosh himself, who is uh, from that region, and Medawi is another town where you have uh, many of the Islamists coming from. And it is this heartland uh, that has really caused and the, the protest in these, this region that has caused the greatest anxiety for the regime and surprise, because usually they have been a constituency that have been supporting the regime and where the regime recruits not only for its government and bureaucracy, but also its, its ethnic groups from the northern region are the ones that are favored as a recruitment to be recruited into the National Intelligence and Security Service. And so this kind of model, uh, this kind of patron-client model that has sustained the regime is now falling apart. And we can see that in terms of the origins and the spread of the protest. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, hard currency is unavailable or it is being funneled into certain pockets, as uh, many would, would tell you. The corruption is very high and there is not enough rents, so to speak, to dispense to supporters in these regions and throughout the country. And so that is an important aspect. The regime has tried to get aid from the Gulf countries and other countries, the hard currency, not only to alleviate some of the economic problems, but most importantly uh, and most likely in order to uh, be able to maintain their um, patronage system. So far, interestingly enough, 
no Arab country, including Saudi Arabia or the United Arab Emirates, has, has come forward to assist this regime financially. Are you talking in general or at this particular juncture? No, at this particular juncture. In the past, of course, they have been an important source of support, and you have to also remember that uh, Bashir sent uh, soldiers to Yemen in order to curry favor with uh, Saudi Arabia in particular. And so in the past, they have been able to, uh, or Bashir has been able to generate some financial assistance from these countries, but you don't see that uh, coming at the moment. One of the main reasons is that, as an Egyptian journalist put it so well, the Bashir regime has been trying to curry favor with a variety of countries in the region, including Qatar and Turkey. And of course, as you know full well, Sudan's relationship with Qatar is not something that Saudi Arabia is particularly excited about at this juncture, given the hostility that these countries have and their regional ambitions and competition. And so um, at this juncture, despite the protest and his attempt to generate funds from Arab Gulf countries and Saudi Arabia, none has been forthcoming. And this is an indication of the lack of support. Not to say that these countries are supporting the protesters, they are not, but they are certainly not at this point willing to bail him out, so to speak. That includes Qatar. It has absolutely in the past. Uh, yeah. Qatar has played an important role in sure. supporting. But at the same time, you have <laughs> you have Bashir going to Syria even before the United Arab Emirates opened its embassy recently in order to support the, or, you know, uh, and most people understand that that was something that Saudi Arabians and the UAE and those Arab countries who wanted to reestablish their relationship with Hafez al-Assad had basically asked and suggested that Bashir should be the first to kind of feel things out before, you know, full relations are restored between Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, and other Arab countries with Bashar al-Assad's regime. This, of course, is not something that Qatar, uh, of course, is in support of and, of course, is opposed to. And so at this point, uh, they're also kind of watching to see how Bashir's relationship with their competitors uh, develops. So Damascus was where Bashar met Bashir. Oh, That's yes, a, you can see it in, uh, that was in the just, videos. That was just last month. So, right. Khaled, can you tell us what lessons have the Sudanese activists and protesters learned from the uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa that began in December 2010 in Tunisia and continued throughout the Middle East and North Africa? Perhaps you can also talk about the similarities and differences between the ongoing protests and the ones that we witnessed earlier in the region. Well, I think one of the things that the Sudanese activists have learned is, number one, of course, this kind of the importance of particular kind of slogans, which are really important. But I think one of the main things that have been learned, and of course the countries have learned from each other, but Sudan comes after Tunisia and Egypt in some sense, at least for the 2011 protests, and that is uh, the importance of social media. I think that in terms of activism, I think that that is something that, not to say that Sudanese activists hadn't, you know, been aware and utilized social media, but the modalities and the importance and the kind of language and repertoire of contention that that is possible through social media is absolutely something that Sudanese activists have benefited from uh, their Arab counterparts in the Arab uprisings in Tunisia and Egypt in particular. Egypt is, of course, very close, but also also Tunisia. And what you see is that whether it is Twitter or Facebook, Instagram, that's really important. One of the most important aspects of these protests, I'm not sure I emphasized, is 
despite the fact that uh, immediately in the first few days of the protest, when the government uh, shut down Facebook, they shut down Twitter, um, you know, you had basically activists standing outside their homes or in their neighborhoods, um, helping people install uh, virtual private networks in order to be able to access Twitter, access Facebook. So all of these activists now have, most of them have VPN, and they utilize WhatsApp um, in order to coordinate these protests. And that kind of the use of social media in the context of authoritarianism in order to, uh, an authoritarian regime, in order to coordinate and mobilize and sustain protest is absolutely something that has been inherited from and learned from in terms of uh, others. And of course, Sudanese activists would say that they've been utilizing it uh, for a long time, but I think that that is really important. Another similarity is a generational one. I think I emphasized before that this kind of distrust of uh, older leadership is something, having interviewed youth activists in Egypt, is something common, uh, and also in Morocco, actually, when I was there recently, is something very common to uh, these groups in terms of youth, because you're from region, the notion of a real kind of youth empowerment and the youth activists standing at the forefront of politics and the role of women as protest and activists in such a important, strong way is something that is very similar, which is really important to emphasize. And another thing which is uh, open to be debate, but I think is really important, that is similar among all these uh, protest movements is the um, attitudes towards the Islamist political project. I think that you have amalgamation of, of activists who are really interrogating the fusion of political rule with Islamist rather than, you know, Muslim or Islamic rhetoric um, as a way forward in terms of guaranteeing, you know, political freedom, civil liberties, and of course, dealing with issues of minorities. And as one Sudanese activist said, and I'm not sure it's representative, but he's one of the members of the Sudanese professional associations and also a youth activist. And he said that, you know, the idea from their perspective is to move towards a liberal democracy or transition, for lack of a better term, that does not contradict the Sharia or Islam. This is a kind of discourse that is popular among a lot of activists in the region, not to go against uh, Islamic tenets necessarily or values and customs, but to also understand that Islamist ideology can be used for these instrumental purposes. So those are really important similarities. The differences are equally important. I think that uh, for Sudan, there is, a, as I said, a longer history of protest. Many Sudanese activists would be really reluctant to say that they owe everything to the Arab Spring. I would be one of those, actually, because anyone understanding Sudanese history as a shortcut, I would say perhaps in this case, Sudan is more similar to sub-Saharan African countries, uh, which I'm also familiar with, and that is political liberalization having a longer history and a deeper history for a variety of reasons, and the experimentation of uh, democratization and popular uprisings is something that is common in the African continent, and we have a large number of African countries that have transitioned from authoritarian rule to a multi-party democracy. And this is important in the sense that Sudan has experienced at least two democratic governments, 
And we know that countries with a history of democratic experiments are more likely, uh, it's not a guarantee, but they're more likely to uh, move forward in terms of transitioning to democratic rule. So the political culture of democracy is something that uh, Sudan has, I think, because of its history. It has, of course, a history of conflict as well, but that is something that I think is dissimilar or not as, as similar to many of, not all, but many of the Arab countries. So that is really important to point out. When we're talking about lessons from the uh, earlier uprisings in the region, what about this issue of solidarity across classes, appealing to the urban poor, trying to create a broad coalition? What about that? And that's something that is in sharp contrast to what you witnessed in the movements in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. I mean, when you're talking about the imperatives of neoliberal capitalism, then shouldn't we be focusing on things of that nature? Would liberal democracy be sort of an answer to these issues? Oh, that's a very important point. Absolutely. I was actually referencing a member of the Sunnis Professional Association, which that is, of course, their orientation at the moment. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think that um, from the perspective of these demonstrations, I think you definitely see that. When I mentioned maybe the theme of lessons learned, you know, the kind of repeated uh, sporadic waves of protest over so many years in Sudan has, I think, led to a real rethinking or, you know, a real serious discussion about what you're talking about. In the Sudan case, I would say that you're absolutely right, and I would add the issue of race as well as class. And the reason I say that is that because the Sunnis government has had this model, especially after the loss of oil, if I don't get too technical, and that is that in 2017, following a particular meeting between the IMF and the Sudanese government, the IMF suggested, of course, you know, make devaluing the, um, the Sudanese dollar in, in order to kind of curtail the black market transactions in hard currency and at the same time, of course, remove uh, subsidies. What the government did uh, was to really... Um, implement the removal of subsidies unequally in a regional sense. So you'd have a removal of subsidies in the regional areas, including in Atbara, but maintaining some of them in Khartoum, uh, because, of course, Khartoum is a source of mobilization. So for political reasons, subsidies were, or the lifting of subsidies and economic policy was uh, implemented unequally, unevenly among between the center and the regions. And this is one of the grievances of the regions, which is really important. Part of that kind of policy was also to begin a real strong kind of racist discourse. Just as an extreme example, but a very, very relevant one, is that at the beginning of the demonstrations in Atbara on um, December 19th, and then in the first week at least, the government actually announced that these are demonstrations that were being supported, organized by Israeli-sponsored black Darfurians from Darfur and it perpetuated this kind of racist, now it's widely acknowledged among activists in Sudan, a racist discourse. This is why the slogans of uh, we are all Darfurians uh, has become so resonant. So over time, and particularly in these protests, number one, there is a real understanding that this government has used racial division and racism in order to divide the population. And at the same time, there is a real concerted understanding that the economic policies have benefited or uh, victimized certain people as opposed to others in the regions and within capital city as well. So these are discussions that are represented or incorporated maybe in the slogans, but also in the discussions of what would happen in the future. 
Now, I'm not going to sugarcoat it because one, your question is very central because at this point, the outstanding question in terms of the sustainability of the protest and also transition, if that was to occur, and even the success, is to what extent would a generally middle-class youth movement and professional unions and labor unions elite, to what extent uh, would they be able to not only coordinate with lower class and poor Sudanese, but also to incorporate their own grievances and needs. And that is something that is really very, very important. I don't see that kind of coordination at this point. But uh, without that kind of coordination, we see that a great deal of success has been achieved with respect to incorporate different regions and Darfurians, as one activist put it in Khartoum, that Darfurians and particularly students of Darfur in Darfur or Darfurian students who've been really brutalized the most, not only in Darfur, but in detention and torture in Sudan, are, as he put it, the soul of the resistance of what is going on now. So that issue is promising because uh, Ethnicity and race and racial division um, has become very pronounced over the years. And of course, as you know, for Sudan, that's particularly a kind of fault line. The issue of class solidarity is very, very important to highlight. But I do want to say that there is progress on that. I should say very clearly that I didn't mention that the slogans of peace, justice, that is being utilized by the protesters is actually a slogan from the sixth annual meeting of the Sudanese Communist Party. Uh, another slogan that is being utilized that in translated from Arabic is the people are against those who steal their sweat, in other words, their labor. Those are slogans that reflect the populist and really important kind of understanding of the class divisions and violence that have been perpetuated in the past by this and successive regimes. So um, speaking to members of the Communist Party there, which are uh, very much at the forefront of the movement, uh, they have a very different understanding of the transition going forward. They don't believe in a soft landing. They don't believe in a negotiated transition. They would prefer to have the removal of Bashir and the establishment, and they refuse to agree to an old political guard taking over in the transition period. So it is a source of contention, but it's not something that is not apparent in the discussions among the different opposition groups right now. Since we talked about class, race, and ethnicity, we should mention that the images of the recent protests in Sudan uh, suggest eminent presence of female protesters. What are the reasons for it? I'm glad you asked this question because I asked this question. You know, for someone who lives mostly here, and I travel to Sudan once, uh, hope, you know, I try to twice a year, but I'm, of course, from Sudan. I always like to ask experts and others. And um, 
when I was there, although I had written, of course, a piece on female-led protest of 2013, which is really important, female activism or the role of women in politics in Sudan is a bit different from other Arab countries. It's very different. Uh, One of the reasons, to be very clear, is that the Sudanese Communist Party of the 1950s, 60s, and uh, 70s, and of course it continues to this day, did achieve a great deal or make a lot of strides in representation of women in the party and part of of the political kind of community and sphere. It was one of the largest, if not the largest, with the Iraq Communist Party, and of course one of its big platforms was supporting the inclusion of women. And that becomes a really important history. Most um, experts on issues of gender and female activism in the Arab world in particular acknowledge the the kind of long history of uh, the participation of Sudanese women in politics that does not come as a surprise. We also have uh, women NGOs, institutions that are also have been established by women, and a long history of very prominent women activists and feminists that uh, you just have to Google to find the long list of very famous names. Fatma Ibrahim, the late Fatma Ibrahim, who's uh, one of the founders of the women's group or sector in the Communist Party, is very, very important. Another element is structural, and that is that women now um, participate, as in other countries, in public sphere, in the workforce. They represent the largest percentage of women going into universities, graduating, and they also I don't have the figures, but many would say they also, in the bureaucracy, at least at the lower and middle levels, actually younger women are more represented even than men. Uh, Those are kind of general reasons for their participation when issues of uh, injustice or issues of economic uh, crisis occurs, that they would be at the forefront. But um, when I was in Sudan, when I asked this question, what was emphasized to me was something very, very important, and that is the long history of this particular Islamist regime and its relationship to uh, women. That is a moral police that historically has really brutalized uh, women in a variety of different formal and informal ways. Poor women in particular and women working in the informal sector have been brutalized physically. You can see a number of videos of the police who uh, met out uh, particular forms of violence against women. So there have been a great deal of laws against women in issues of when Sudanese women, not uh, foreigners, led the charge uh, to ban FGM, female genital mutilation. It was Sudanese women who actually put it on the table. The government initially agreed to it, and then Islamist allies of the president refused to sanction or vote in the affirmative for the banning of FGM in the country, which is a, a central concern as an example for, for Sudanese women. So it really is in the relationship also, not only history, but the relationship and discrimination, not only formally in terms of the workplace, but also in terms of the violence meted out against women, not only in Khartoum, but also in Darfur by security forces that have galvanized women at the forefront of these these demonstrations. In the case of university students, uh, women are at forefront of protest uh, initially in many instances uh, because uh, they take very seriously issues of the hike in tuition fees and uh, issues of uh, fees of transportation, these kind of bread and butter issues which are really important given the fact that women, you know, in the majority really at, at many of these university institutions. Uh, the role of women in these demonstrations has become so important and in many ways so central 
that it has led Omar Bashir himself to cultivate or try to cultivate women in order to support him. And you see that in all of his addresses and, and his recent speeches during this, these protests and demonstrations, where he makes sure women are at the very forefront so the media and the TV cameras can take a, a look at them. And also in his speeches, he has emphasized that women are the backbone of Sudan and those kind of speeches which he didn't really make in the past or those kind of points with respect to women indicate that even from his perspective, he understands the, the strong role and important role women have played in these protests. And because of his Islamist project, which at this point is really increasingly illegitimate among a wide spectrum of Sudanese, the role of women is important because they're supposed to be the kind of, so to speak, the caretakers of the home in his, from his perspective and, of course, from an Islamic perspective. So they're very central, uh, not only young women, but also professional and older women who are taking part in these protests. We can confidently say that there is a strong anti-Islamist tendencies among the protesters. And I suppose that's not surprising. After all, for most Sudanese, Islamism signifies more than three decades of despotism, injustice, social control, as you mentioned, and corruption in the country. It's interesting, though, what you said about women in Sudan is very similar to what we see women in Iran. When it comes to these protests, you see them being omnipresent in these protests. And there is a new agency, in a way, for women under an Islamist state. Yes, I'm not an expert on Iran, but I think the Iran case is a bit different because, of course, the government came through a revolution, whereas uh, the Sudan case, the Islamists came in through a, through a coup. And what a little I know about uh, women activists in Iran is uh, you only not only have secular or you know maybe leftist-minded women, but also women who are have interrogated, examined the Islamist project in Iran itself, and you know, for lack of better term, Islamic feminism in Iran has been very important in um, critiquing the regime on its own terms, for lack of better phrasing. That becomes a really important aspect. The project of Islamic feminism in Sudan that was spearheaded in many ways by uh, Hazrat Turabi's wife, Wissal, happens to be related to Saudi al-Mahdi of the Umba Party, is by all accounts among female activists in Sudan a failed project. The activists in Sudan that are opposed to the regime come from more uh, leftist orientations, I would say. And this is why I do mention the Communist Party and other, although they're not the only ones, of course. So you don't have necessarily female activists, as you said, who are kind of critiquing this regime on its own terms, in terms of their discourse, Islamic discourse itself, whereas Iranian women have been you know, effective in also talking about the issue of Islamist reform versus a more authoritarian form of Islam in Iran. In Sudan, at this point at least, you do have, as you put it, real kind of opposition to what is seen as a, as a very instrumental use of Islam. This government for the past three decades and the consensus is it has not been able to provide the kind of economic benefits, political benefits, and even uh, the moral benefits. And this is why I emphasize what we see in these protests is a real kind of opposition to imams and mosques. This happened in Al-Bara. An important case in Al-Bara, for example, is not only where there are protests outside of the mosques, but also activists in that city actually um, ransacked the Zakat Foundation that ostensibly is supposed to dispense 
arms and, and charity to the most vulnerable of populations. And so you have a real opposition to some of the Islamist institutions, many of the Islamist institutions built by this regime. And you have members of congregations and who are in the mosque asking imams, in one case criticizing an imam for uh, criticizing Israel, caring about Palestinians, but not caring about the violence meted out at demonstrators outside of in the city. And so there is now, at least among the demonstrators, a real opposition to the Islamist project, I would say. This is not to say that we don't have the National Popular Congress Party, for example, or the Popular Congress Party, rather, um, PCP, which is an Islamist party that branched out and uh, is now in opposition from the Bashir ruling party. And it is one that was essentially established by Hassan Turabi and following his death, his supporters who are in opposition to the Bashir regime still have a political party. And we do have Islamist activists and even Ghazi Adabani's reform party is considered an Islamist party. But they are far less influential at the moment, although they are definitely still part of the political landscape and they will be part of the political future, so to speak. One thing I wanted to uh, mention was, in spite of the fact that what you have in Iran was a regime that actually came to power as a result of a revolution, but the project of Islamizing the society and creating an Islamic man or woman was actually a top-down project. So I think in that sense, there are similarities. I wanted to follow up on a point that you mentioned, and I think that's an important point. There are 19 different ethnic groups in Sudan. Is that correct? There are probably even more. There are uh, probably even more. The fact that on top of it, you have had these military campaigns by the central government, by al-Bashir's regime, against some of these regions, as we know, South Kordofan, Blue Nile provinces, and Darfur. Given that sort of a history and that sort of, a, if you like, bitterness and resentment created by this long-arm conflict, is there a fear among the Sudanese population of an all-out war, of a widespread war, a scenario in which the regime and its opposition would reach a political stasis, if you like, uh, leading to a prolonged armed conflict that would eventually lead to disintegration of the country along ethnic lines. And does the regime use such concerns to advocate for preserving this status quo and the stability, as they call it, as a better alternative to mayhem and war? This question you pose is so central to the regime's relationship to the outside world that it is really, I'm very glad you asked it. And absolutely, I think what you see now, and it has been the case in the past, just recently, a couple of days ago, Bashir once again um, gave a speech in which he, well, this was last week, actually, in his famous address uh, at the Green Square in Khartoum that you can find on video or YouTube, in which he emphasized that, um, you know, that many countries like Syria and others used to be some of the best and most stable countries, but look, they are now countries of refugees. And if these demonstrators continue to listen to the saboteurs and the thugs that are leading them, uh, Sudan will go the way of Syria, it'll go the way of Somalia, and it'll, and Sudanese, and he said to the to Sudanese, uh, public that where will you go? You're all going to be refugees. This discourse of chaos, of state disintegration, of kind of anarchy in Sudan is the kind of 
and instability is what he uses most, not only to the Arab region, who have their own concerns, but also, of course, to uh, the United States, to the UK, to the European Union, uh, who, of course, have strategic interest in a country like Sudan, which is very, very strategic, uh, not only with respect to its relationship and uh, to the Red Sea and the Arabian Gulf, but also, of course, to the Horn of Africa and also the Sahel region. So it's a central geopolitically kind of important country. And his discourse of anarchy, chaos, and civil war at the heart of Sudan is is listened to, I would say, by outsiders in terms of making them wary about supporting these demonstrators and protesters. But to answer your question, no, I don't feel that that is the case. And the reason for that is that Sudan has already been undergoing wars and instability, but they have been regionally focused. As you mentioned, and we have to emphasize that this is a country that's going into, has wars in the Nuba Mountains in the southern Kurdufan, the Blue Nile on the border of South Sudan, and of course Darfur, at least three conflicts that are ongoing. And what these demonstrators and these organizations are trying to do is to critique the government for its complete failure to stabilize the country. You know, uh, it's complete failure to deal with South Sudan. Of course, it uh, lets South Sudan go uh, for its own uh, political reasons. But it's been unable to really stop the conflict in Darfur and lead to stability there or Nuba Mountains or southern Kurdufan. So activists and others, everyone is fully aware. So uh, it is this regime that has read to deep instability. That's really important. The danger of any conflict within Khartoum and the dismemberment of the state, that is dependent on the regime's policies itself. What observers, casual observers don't know is that the only threat of that would be the mobilization of paramilitary militias linked to the regime uh, to wreak havoc on the population. This is why uh, the protesters, once again, I'll emphasize, are you know, chanting in their slogans, peaceful, peaceful, peaceful. In other words, this must be a peaceful demonstration. These must be peaceful protests. And what we see is that there's an alliance among different ethnic groups and different regions, really for the first time, where you have coordinated activity across regions from Darfur to Port Sudan, This is a very large country, and for the first time you have coordination between the city on the coast, on the Red Sea, and as far as Darfur in the west. You have southerners in civil society who are now very upset at being banned from criticizing what's going on, uh, how the government is treating the north. And you have a northern constituency that was a source of recruitment for this regime that now has taken the side of these protesters. So actually these demonstrators, given their coordination and depth and spread across the country, are really a force of stability because instability in Sudan has been along ethnic and regional lines, and that's what the war is. So, you know, outside observers would may perhaps have a knowledge of Syria or Somalia or something like that, but it really is ignorance of the history and the politics of Sudan that would would make this kind of discourse perpetuated by Bashir even plausible or rational. And um, that's important to emphasize because the United States, European Union, Norway, the Troika that uh, is very, very interested and has... Um, influenced Sudanese politics, has been very reticent. They've criticized the human rights violations, but they've been very reticent to really support 
the demonstrations and protesters. So Europeans have been fairly silent on this issue. They're not lending support to protesters, even though Mr. al-Bashir is wanted by the Hague-based International Criminal Court for war crimes and genocide committed in Darfur, where a brutal conflict erupted in 2003. Yes, uh, it's, it's true, but, you know, uh, that indictment pales in terms of the consideration of uh, these uh, external actors, I would say. I mean, the European Union is uh, deeply concerned about the immigration problem, and it signed uh, a couple of years ago basically an agreement with the Bashir government to make sure, and it has done that with other countries in the region, for example, Morocco, to get the support of the Bashir regime to stop immigration uh, stop Sudan from being a route of immigration towards Europe, for example, you know, from Sudan to Libya and to Europe uh, as one example. That is a priority for the European Union vis-a-vis Sudan. The United States, of course, is much more interested in in South Sudan and the instability in the Horn of Africa. And, of course, in the past, uh, this particular government has cooperated with the United States with respect to intelligence gathering and, of course, uh, giving information on intelligence with respect to terrorist and radical organizations. Just before these uh, protests, as you know, not only were the sanctions lifted last year, but the U.S. was seriously considering taking Sudan out of the, off the list of sponsoring terrorism. And so that is a consideration for the United States, which is what they really are most interested in. We see that so far in terms of their reluctance to support these demonstrators. And of course, in the Arab world, you have, you know, Turkey and Qatar and um, Iran from the perspective of the other Arab countries uh, on one side, um, and uh, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and, you know, essentially Egypt on the other side. So none of the Arab countries, because of these geopolitical interests, is willing to support the demonstrators. But as students of Arab politics will tell you, um, the kind of general history of that as well, of course, is that uh, there is really rarely, uh, if ever, have uh, Arab regimes supported these kind of movements calling for democratization. And Sudanese, in all of the past experiences of popular intifadas, uprisings that have led to overthrow of military regimes and the onset of democracy have not received any real uh, support from Arab governments. So the notion of democratic, multi-party Sudan is not necessarily something that is in the interest of these countries in the region, and one has to be clear about that. Now, the activists know fully well that they are not really in the position to expect uh, support because of these reasons, and um, uh, what they're calling on now is to uh, gather support from Sudanese in the diaspora, which is something very important for the professional, the Sudanese Professional Association, for example. Has China re- reacted to the protests? Has there been any official statements? China hasn't set out a statement in support of the demonstrations, for sure. And in most likelihood, it continues to support the Bashir regime. But uh, China's interest in Sudan is uh, not as important as it used to be when there was a great deal of oil in the northern part of this the Sudan, which is really uh, important. There are some Chinese investments in the Sudan, but I asked about it when I was there, and it's, it's greatly inflated. You do see some Chinese companies, but the investment is relatively small. And whereas you had many Chinese coming to Sudan during the period of the oil boom, many of them have returned, and the focus is more on South Sudan at the moment. But there is no way that China is going to support 
demonstrators. Of course, that is the issue of sovereignty is something that China is very clear about, despite what form the regime might take. So, but so far, they have not given aid, financial aid, to to Bashir. And uh, finally, Khaled, what is the outlook for the protests in Sudan? Can these protests evolve into a social movement and a national bloc that transcends regional and ethnic and racial divide, something that would topple the present regime and prepare the grounds for a democratic transformation? Well, I mean, just to kind of simplify matters or maybe be more parsimonious, I think that depends on two things. That depends on, frankly, the organization and and level of power and unity of the security forces, because that has been key in terms of quelling a previous protest. And this particular government, and we didn't have time to go into it, has done everything in its power to really focus on kind of expanding and uh, multiplying the different security arms of the state in ways to ensure that they wouldn't really have to undergo or um, the kind of popular uprisings that led to the downfall of previous military regimes. So the question then hinges on the power and support and unity of the security forces and their relationship to Bashir. And the other part of the equation is really the strength of the opposition that historically has been divided for a variety of reasons, but also because this particular government has made sure to do everything in its power as well in order to weaken the political opposition and to divide them among themselves, not only through detention, imprisonment, but also through co-optation. That formula of utilizing violence, the stick of the security forces, and the carrot of dividing and weakening the political opposition will determine whether these demonstrations are sustainable and whether they'll meet their objectives of essentially ousting and overthrowing the Bashir regime and paving the way for a transition to multi-party democracy. So as as it stands, and I can't be 100% sure because, frankly, things are evolving very quickly. I'm sure you'll understand that. But what we see is that, as we mentioned before, definitely fissures between the Sudan Armed Forces and the Bashir regime. So let's assume that these demonstrations are sustained, then there are some indications for those of us, of course, who follow Sudan closely, that the Sudanese armed forces would take uh, a position against a leader that is not only unpopular, but where the majority of the population across the different regions has come to abhor and is demanding his removal uh, over if demonstrations are sustained, and in particular, if these general strikes are implemented in a sustainable way, then there is a good chance that you'll see armed forces moving away from their supporting the Bashir regime. But this is, at this point, just uh, unfortunately speculation. It has to depend on how the demonstrations pan out. Uh, In terms of the opposition political parties, I would say that this is uh, equally important at this point, to what extent will the political, traditional political parties come on board with a professional association and uh, other activists in civil society to ensure that they will be a unified front against the government? But as you mentioned before, the important and positive sign is that two important parties that were co-opted and were part of the regime uh, have decided to remove themselves and support the demonstrators. So basically you have all the traditional parties supporting the demonstrations, two political parties in Darfur and armed groups, and 
other parties, such as the Ummah Party, led by Saadi al-Mahdi, who also has come out in full support of these demonstrations. So now we see a great, much more unity among the opposition. But that has to do and is a result of the sheer fact that these are so far in their fourth week, which hasn't happened before, and they seem to be sustained and persistent, which is different from previous.